you would, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, as you already are now aware that we're kind of taking a break from the book of Mark for a week. So Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to be looking at a primarily chapter 14, but we'll also go back to the Old Testament for a moment. But I want to just start out this morning by saying I want us all to see a great and powerful and awesome God. I want us all to sense his presence. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wow, that is awfully weak. Do you want to see God at work? There we go. There we go. It starts with a desire. You want to see him and look for him and sense his presence. Last Friday, November 3rd, 2017, I made a commitment. My commitment was several things. First of all, to trust God more. If you've been a Christian for very long, you kind of notice in your life there are ebbs and flows of our trust and faith in God. There are times when you've had all the faith in the world, all the trust in the world, and that there's nothing that God wouldn't or couldn't do for you. And then you hit some dry spells where you just sense, where is God? Or that's your feeling of, man, I just feel alone. I don't feel like... And as Greater Vision had a song entitled, Who Moved? It wasn't God that moved. God's still where God is. And oftentimes God is where he's going to be. And it's oftentimes us who are distanced from him, not him from us. He's there. But I made a commitment to trust God more. I made a commitment to act by faith and expect him to answer prayer and to do great things. And to step out in obedience a little bit more. And in this commitment, I just felt like, man, we serve an awesome, powerful God. But do we really expect Him to do great things? Let's be honest. We know in our head that He is able and capable to do anything. But yet, in the reality of our day-to-day living, we don't really expect Him to. Let's be honest, right? Let's be honest. I made a commitment because I felt like God was pressing on my heart to just say, hey, quit praying if you don't expect him to do something. Stop praying. You're wasting your time if you don't think he's going to do anything. And remember, we've talked about this numerous times in in past sermons. Matthew 13, and Jesus did not do many mighty works there, not because he was incapable, but because of their unbelief. If you don't expect God to do something, guess what? You won't be disappointed. So God challenged my heart to expect Him to do some great things. God challenged me and I made a commitment to pray more. To pray more. And I don't know about you, but praying is not always the easiest thing. I'm not talking about just closing our eyes and bowing our head and praying for the dinner, for the breakfast, for a bedtime you know, devotional prayer before we go to sleep. I'm talking about just praying praying out to God and saying, God, if you don't do this, it's not going to get done. And God just really challenged me to start praying more. And God challenged me, and I made a commitment to sacrifice more for His kingdom and to not to just settle. I think we as believers have learned to settle too much. We settle for status quo. We settle for, we settle for well, okay is good enough. I mean, how many times have we come into the church facility and we have this idea that, well, the bills are paid, you know, everything's getting go- everything's okay, 
Uh, nobody's really fighting with anyone else, so we have this great sense of unity. Everything is just good. And we've settled for just accepting good. Because, I mean, we all know of churches that are doing a whole lot worse than us. Where there is fighting, where there's griping, where there's complaining, where there's division, where there's discord and disunity. And I thank God that we have a, generally speaking, as far as I can tell, a genuine love for one another. We do what we can to serve one another and take care of one another. And it's not always perfect. we got areas to improve. But I think by and large, a lot of us have learned to settle. For good is good enough. And God began to challenge my heart to not to settle. And let me just say this. I'm not sure what all this would mean. But I do know this. And I know this without a doubt. The devil will not let this kind of a commitment go unchallenged. And I dare say that every time I've ever made a commitment like this, it has been a short-lived challenge because of the opposition, because of the discord, or the the idea of making this commitment and the devil challenging you to see whether or not you're really going to trust God, whether you're really going to have faith to see him do something. And sadly, I kind of forget about it. Maybe you feel that way too at times. But let me just share a few thoughts of what I was thinking about concerning God doing great things. And I promise you within a little bit I will get in the Word. I promise. Let me just share a few thoughts. Every time I look at this building, I say, it's just a building. It's four walls. It's a facility. But uh, the common sense side of me says, man, this roof is getting old. Isn't it? I mean, nothing like having to crawl up on the corner of the roof and put a metal plate in because water is coming down through the wall in a hole this size. Yes, that's our roof. But every every once in a while, you kind of just like, yeah, it's okay, but you know, yeah, someday we got to get to it. I just began to trust God and say, you know what? God can fix this. It's just a roof. And it's just a facility. It's just a medium, a tool to be used for God's glory and impact, right? But we need to take care of what God gives us. I began thinking about a family life center, a gymnasium, a fellowship hall, something like that. In fact, so much so that last week I went to Teresa, who is an architect, if you didn't know that, and I gave her all the blueprints. I said, figure out what it would take. Can't hurt the dream, right? I mean, people have been talking about this for 25, 30 years here. And then you have the naysayers who say, well, it just must not be God's will. How do you know it's not God's will if you've never taken a step of faith to see it come to fruition? God, take the step at some point. Maybe God will shut the doors. I don't know, but I'd rather see him shut the doors than to never ask him to open them. So I began to think about this family life center, this gym, whatever you want to call it, I don't care. It's just an opportunity to see kingdom impact. I began to pray for more ministry opportunities to serve our community. I began to pray for and expect God to bring key people to lead key areas of ministry. I began to pray for more souls saved. Amen? More people baptized, more people discipled, more people added to the, to the church. I started to think about a five-year goal, a ten-year goal. Somewhere down the line where we could say, man, we started praying for this, and God did it. Isn't that awesome? Begin to pray about these things and expect God to do something great. 
just was praying for this, in this area of God challenging me and asking me to make a commitment. I just started praying for kingdom impact. And those of you that know me, I love, I, I, I make this statement all the time, healthy things grow. Right? If it's healthy, it grows. It moves forward. But if it's unhealthy, it doesn't grow. And it's not about the number. But the number says something. It's about impact for the kingdom and for the glory of God. And so I'm in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm going to take this step of faith. I'm going to expect God to do something great. I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to ask God to do something about it. And then Sunday night happens. And it's never good when you get phone calls at 7.30 or 7.45 on Sunday nights. I'm just telling you, it's not. And we find out that at 6 o'clock when Betty and Michael came up to church, their house is dry, and at 7.30 it's flooding with two inches of water all over it. Gotta love it. Got shop dry vacs going everywhere, wet dry vacs going everywhere, and can't keep up the water just pouring in. And then we get over to there to the church, the basement's flooded, got wet dry vacs going everywhere in there, and as fast as you suck it up, it's filling right back in again. Water everywhere. We're up late, up working on these things. And you come in Wednesday morning and the place just stinks. I'm not kidding you. You walk in the front door. Some of you know as you come in the front door, you open the door, it's like, whoa. I was like, oh, praise God. So we end up with this major flooding. And I've never, since I've been here in seven years almost, I've never seen Calkins Road with 18 inches of water on it. Isn't that crazy? I've never seen that. Maybe some of you have been around here. You've seen that. I haven't. I'm trying to get another shop back, and the, and, and the wannabe police officer is telling me I can't go one block further to my house. Get out of the way. I'm going to run you over. <laughs> Not really. Thought about it, though. But major flooding. So we end up removing the carpet and flooring in five rooms downstairs because the stench. And as we were able to get the carpet out and some of the smell went away and removal of the flooring at the house next door at Grubb's place. And, but then we have some professionals come in and say, and we ask the question, why are we getting water in our basement? Why is this such a major issue? And we find out that the guy says, well, I guess if you were to probably take that drywall off right there, you'd probably see the problem. Ed reaches down and, yep, there's the problem. It's all rotten and there's cracks in the foundation everywhere. So the flood revealed that we had major damage to our foundation. And let me just tell you the best part. No insurance for this. No insurance. We're not in a flood zone. We don't have flood insurance. We've never had all this kind of water like this time. And you kind of begin to think in your mind, all this can be just a little bit overwhelming. And then here's the thought that comes to my mind. It's like God was asking me, you sure about this, Ken? You know, it's going to cost you, and I'm not talking about money. It's going to cost you. You still uh, sure about all this, Ken? You still want to pray for all these things? 
And can I just say with you and God as my witness, yes! Because I believe we have a great God. He's going to do far more than what we ask or imagine. I don't know how, but I know that we serve a great God. And it's not confined to whether or not we have insurance for the bottom of our church basement. Satan may have won the battle, as I said this week, but rest assured he will not win the war. He will not win the war. So God brought three passages of Scripture to my mind this week as I was thinking about all this and asking God how we should move forward and what we should do. And I don't know. I don't have the answer. If you've if you got almighty, infinite wisdom, please speak forward because I don't have it. So I'm counting on God to say, God, you got to do this because I can't. I look at our church checking. I say, praise God, our bills are paid. But we don't have a whole lot extra for five rooms of flooring and a foundation repair and for another house to repair. I don't, we don't have it. But I know who does. Right? Do you believe that? A third of you do. That's good. I'll take a third. But if we would look at Matthew chapter 14, verse 22 through 32. Matthew 14. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Well into the night he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from land, battered by the waves because the wind was against him. Jesus came toward them walking on the sea very early in the morning. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, Have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And we'll talk about what happened in just a moment, but as I'm thinking through this passage, several things are coming to my mind. Why in the world would Jesus send them out or go across the sea knowing that there was a storm coming? I mean, does that ever make sense? No. I mean, did, but rest assured, did God know the storm was going to be there? Of course he did. And he sent them anyway. Go figure that one out. Because it doesn't make sense to me. Knowing that there's going to be a storm, I want you to get out there in the middle of the sea, and I want you to do something here. So Jesus obviously knew that the storm was going to come. But here's what he tells us in the story in verse 24. The boat was already out some distance into the lake, into the sea. In other words, they weren't just 50 yards offshore. They weren't 100 yards offshore. Oh, 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 we better hurry up and go back because the storms are getting a little rough out here. We better go back. They're too far to turn back. Think about that. Three things it says. They are already a good distance out. They were battered by the waves and the wind was against them. <laughs> and the sense of humor I think God has is that he knew it was going to happen. He knew it was going to happen. And he said, I want you to go anyway. But a second question comes to my mind in this story. Verse 25. Where was Jesus as the storm got worse? Think about that in your mind just for a moment. Where was Jesus as the storm got worse? As the trouble got worse, as the fear got worse, he was drawing closer to them. 
He was drawing closer to them. Look at this. Jesus came toward them, walking on the sea very early in the morning. And here's another amazing thing. Verse 25. Jesus came toward them. Verse 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they, they cried out in fear. I love what Spurgeon writes about this. Listen to this. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Yes, the disciples saw him. They saw their Jesus, their Lord, and derived no comfort from the sight. Poor human nature's sight is a blind thing compared with the vision of spiritual faith. They saw Jesus, but they did not know what they saw. What could it be but a ghost? How could a real man walk on those churning waters? How could he stand in the strength of such a hurricane? Spurgeon goes on to say, Before many of them were fishermen, and thus had no dread of nature, natural forces on the seas, but a spirit? Now that was too much of a tear. They were at their worst at this moment, and yet if they had, if they had known it, they were on the verge of being at their best. They're on the verge. They're in terror. But they're right on the verge of being their best. Because they're about to see God do something great. And I love this last statement he makes. The nearer Jesus was to them, the greater was their fear. Remember, because they didn't know who he was. The nearer Jesus was to them, the greater was their fear. Lack of discernment blinds the soul to its richest consolations. And he goes on to say, we should plead for the Lord to be near to us so that we may know him more. Think about that. So Lord, if it's you, let me come walk out to you. Come. You know, we're really quick to judge Peter and his anxiousness and his lack of discernment at times. But you know you can't follow him? He got out of the boat. He got out of the boat. And he walked towards Jesus. And it's a wonderful reminder to all of us. When did Peter begin to sink? When he took his eyes off Jesus. Hold that thought throughout the rest of the sermon. He began to think, or sink, when he began to take his eyes off Jesus such a powerful reminder that we have to put our faith above our fear. We need to put our faith above our fear. Let me give you just a couple of verses to consider just for a moment as we continue. First one's in 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. So you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. Why? So that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than that gold, which may result in, or gold, which is, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You're going to experience some trial for a little while. But keep in mind it's temporary. It's just for a little while. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, it says this. Therefore, we do not give up, even though our outer person is being destroyed. Our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What I've found in my life is that God is always in the background doing something that I can't always see. I mean, we've, we've often said, God, I know God's doing a work. I, I wish he'd let me in on it what he's doing. I mean, I'd like to know where I'm going, what I'm doing, what's happening, right? Because we're people that want to know everything just to make sure we're going the right direction. Got to have this visible sign. I, I know where I'm going. But God doesn't always do that. He says, trust me. Trust me. Another question came to my mind from this story about the storm. What happened when they finally crossed over to the other side? I mean, we hear about the storm, right? We hear about the story of Peter as walking on the water. But we don't hear much about what happened one day. I mean, did they get to the other side? What happened if they, if they did? What happened there? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 34. When they had crossed over, they came to a shore of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they alerted the whole vicinity and brought to him all who were sick. They begged him that... They might not only touch the end of his robe, but as many as touched it were healed. The storm sometimes distracts the view of where we're going. How many of you have ever been going down the highway and it just starts coming down in pails? And you can't see in front of you. You're down to 55 mile an hour, and then down to 45, and then down to 35, and then you're down to 25, and... Then you're down to 10 and you, you can't see anything and you finally just decide to pull off. You ever been in that kind of a storm before? The trials can often distract us from where we know we need to go. If we're not careful, we'll let the storm stop us. But remember, the storm is just temporary. Aren't you glad they don't last 24-7, 365? They end Storms end. But what do you do once they end? They got in their boat and they kept going to the other side. And when they got there, Jesus continued the work that he set out to do. He wasn't stopped by the storm. Jesus went on to do great things for them. Then there's another passage that God reminded me of this week same chapter Matthew 14 beginning verse 12 or 13 excuse me when Jesus heard about it he withdrew from there by a boat to a remote place to be alone you ever catch this idea that Jesus got alone as much as he could as often as he could if, if Jesus had that kind of a desire that kind of a need what do you think it says for you and I or not Jesus. I think we need to get alone sometime and get with Jesus. Just saying. When the crowds heard this, they followed him on the foot, 
on foot from the towns, and when he went to went ashore, he saw a large crowd, had compassion on them, and healed their sick. Get the idea here. Jesus was always helping people. He's always, no matter where he went, the crowd is following. Even when he tried to hide, they caught up with him. But he was all about helping people. Then the disciples notice the obvious. Verse 15. When evening came, the disciples approached him, approached Jesus, and said, This place is deserted, and it is already late. Send the crowds away so they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Sounds like a fair enough request, right? I mean, been here all day. You've been busy healing people all day. Jesus, it's time to send them home so that they can go. I mean, after all, we're out in the middle of nowhere. They're hungry. We need to send them home so that they can get food and get their rest and start a new day. All right? Makes fair enough sense, right? Is that what Jesus said? Yeah, you know, Peter, you know, John, whoever you are, great idea. Just blow the whistle and tell them it's over. That's not what he did. Look at verse 16. They don't need to go away, Jesus told them. You give them something to eat. Well, just stop right there. Don't read on. You give them something to eat. How do you suppose we do that? I mean, Jesus, open your eyes, look around, see how many people there are here. Do you see what I see? Hey, guys, do you see, does Jesus need glasses? I mean, says so you feed them. Verse 17, and it's one of the biggest three-letter words in all of life, but. Jesus, I, I hear what you're saying, but. I, I get what you're trying to convey, but. You, you see what I see, right? I mean, guys, I'm not blind here, right? I mean, this, I mean. But we only have five loaves and two fish. Here, they said to him. Jesus doesn't sit, well, maybe we should have a meeting at 4.15 and decide this. Bring them here to me, he said. Then he commanded the crowds to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Everyone ate and was satisfied. Now here's the miracle. Another miracle. They picked up 12 baskets full of leftover pieces. Whoa, wait a minute. There's something we're not hearing here. Somebody brought some more in. They snuck them in, right? There's a perceived problem. Three things. Jesus, we're out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, we're in a deserted place. I mean, they followed you out to a deserted place. We're out in the middle. Of no There's no food out here. Number two, it's late. It's almost too late to eat. I know you see all the TV shows in the middle of the afternoon at 2 o'clock, and they're all sitting around having this big feast. God's Word says it was late. And then number three, they needed to eat. But here's the thing that's interesting to me. Jesus tells his disciples, don't send them away. You feed them. Now, we could look at that several different ways. 
The disciples would say, what? How in the Wait a minute. I could either step out in obedience and do what you're telling me to do, or I can say, uh-uh, not going to do that. They had a choice to make. Jesus says, go get the fish, go get the loaves, bring them to me. And he blessed it and began to pass it out. You see, the command to feed the people was never on the disciples to make it work, right? God was going to do that. All they had to do was be obedient. I want you to hold that thought too throughout the whole sermon, the rest of it. God wants us to trust him and be obedient. They work hand in hand. So Jesus tells the disciples, give them something to eat. So there's the provision that we see of in verses 17 through 20. The question that came to my mind is, can God do the unexpected? Yeah. Can God do the impossible? Yeah. Can God do what is unlikely? I think a lot of it comes down to our faith and obedience. Do we trust them? Are we willing to be obedient? I want to share one more story as we wrap all this together. The third was in Numbers chapter 13. So if you would turn back to Numbers chapter 13. So we talked about these stories here. We talked about uh, the first story, the storm. The second story, the feeding of the 5,000. And now the third story, the promise not claimed. Numbers 13. The Lord spoke to Moses, 13, chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, Send men to scout out the land of Canaan I am giving to the Israelites. Send one man who is a leader among them from each of their ancestral tribes. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran and the Lord's, uh, at the Lord's command. And all the, all the men were leaders in Israel and so forth, and God's Word gives us a big list of who those men were. But look down at verse 17. Chapter 13, verse 17. It says, When Moses sent them out to scout out the land of Canaan, he told them, Go up this way to the Negev, then go up into the hill country, see what the land is like, and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many, is the land they live in good or bad, are the cities they live in encampments or fortifications? Is the land fertile or unproductive? And there are trees in it or not? Be courageous. Bring back some fruit from the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So verse 21. So they went up and scouted out the land from the wildernesses in as far as Rehob and near the entrance of Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron and all the places, I mean, they, they, they went everywhere and did everything that Moses told them to do. In verse 23, says, When they came to the valley of Eshkel, they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, which was carried on a pole by two men. They also took some pomegranates and figs. And that place was called the valley of Eshkel because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from scouting out the land. 
So God has given them this command. I want you to go scout out the land that I'm giving you. I want you to check out the land. I want you to check out the dirt. Is it, is, is it fertile soil? Can we grow things in it? Uh, what about the people? Are they a lot there? Are there a few? Are, there, are they big? Are they small? I mean, the cities that they live in, are they fortified? Are they encampments? I mean, I want you to get a bird's eye view of everything that's taking place here. And guess what? They went and did that. They get to the Valley of Eshkrol, and they get this big cluster. Of, can you imagine? Just put on your thinking cap just for a moment. A cluster of grapes so huge, it takes a couple men on a pole to carry these things out. Awesome. Can you imagine? So here's the report. Verse 26. The men went back to Moses, Aaron, and the entire Israelite community in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. They brought back a report for them and the whole community, and they showed them the fruit of the land. They reported to Moses, We went into the land where you sent us. Indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey, and, there is, and here are some of its fruits. What's the next word? What? But. Here's another but. But. However. Fill in the blank. We know what you're saying, but. The people living in the land are strong, and the cities are large and fortified. We also saw the descendants of Anak there. Verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people in the presence of Moses and said, let's go up now and take possession of the land because we can certainly conquer it. Don't you always love that one in the group that says we can do this? There's always that one. We got this. Let's go. It's always that one. By the way, this is the message that God used when he called me to preach in eighth grade. I love this story. Verse 31. What's the first word? But. But the men who had gone up with him responded, We can't attack the people because they are stronger than we are. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land they had scouted. The command was to go. Bring back report. Let me ask this question. Was it ever, ever, at any point, up to the spies... To, as they checked out the land to come up with a plan to attack them and to kill them and to take over the land? Are you sure? Just kidding. No, it wasn't. Go back to verse 2. Send men to scout out the land of Canaan. What's the next phrase? I am giving to the Israelites. The outcome was already predetermined, was it not? Think about this. It was already theirs. It's like, go check it out. Check out this land that I'm giving to you. I'm just telling you, if someone gave me 100 acres of prime wooded land infested with nice big bucks, out in the middle of nowhere, I'd be going to check it out. I mean, you're giving me this? Yeah, go check it out. I'd be down there. See, how can I get a cabin on this land? How can I get something here so I can come go hunting here? Go check out the land that I'm giving you. I mean, check it all out. Check out everything. Come back and tell us what you think. It was already theirs. But the butts got in the way. 
But there are giants there. But there are too many people. But there are walled cities there. Let me just ask this question. What is it that God has challenged you to do, but there's too many buts? Think about it. What has God asked you to do that you're unwilling to do because you think it's too great a task? You know what I see here? Chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Then the whole company broke into loud cries and the people wept that night. Stop right there. You got the entire encampment of Israelites bawling their eyes out, crying out. Why do you think they were crying? I'm just going to inject my opinion here. I think my opinion is pretty correct. I think they're crying over missed blessings. I think they really wanted to go there, but in their mind they couldn't see it happening. And they were upset. But they failed to take God his promise verse 2 says all the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron and the whole community told them if only we had died in the land of Egypt really you're going to pull that card again just like you did all throughout Exodus if we just left us alone to die in the was it really better of course not but in times of frustration and anxiety and despair and disappointment we tend to run back to what we think was better, and it's not. It says, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? Our wives and children will become plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Really? Is it, you remember what lead you? Go back to Exodus. I've heard your cries by reason of your taskmasters. I've seen how they whip you and scourge you and force you to work. Did you forget how much you hated that? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. I mean, they were wanting to jump out of the frying pan and get into the boiling water. I mean, they just couldn't see it. Down to verse, chapter 14, verse 10. And while the whole community threatened to stone them, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the Israelites at the tent of the meeting. You see, in the beginning, the people cried. You see, in verses 5 through 9, how Moses and Aaron tried to quiet the people and get their focus back on God. And you see what the people were doing in verse 10. And then you see God's response in verses 11 and 12. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people despise me? How long will they not trust me despite all the signs I have performed among them? How long? I asked you to keep a couple things in mind as we looked at these three stories. Number one, everything that happens in our life, don't forget that God knew it would. God knew it would. There is nothing that happens in your life that God did not know that it would take place. 
Let that sink in. And if God knew it would take place, why don't we trust him? Why don't we trust him? I think I have a good idea why. Because we like to control things. We like to control stuff. And if God knows that it's going to take place, we not only need to trust him, but we need to stay focused on the goal. Keep moving forward. One step at a time. Taking God at his word. And in those circumstances, we'll either be rewarded or we'll suffer loss of blessing. And the reward, just let me just say, is not what you, may, you and I may want it to be. Keep that in mind. God has his own will, his own way, his own plan. Another thread that runs through the whole thing is that obedience and trust goes hand in hand. Let me ask you a question. The children, or these spies that Moses sent out, did they do what Moses asked them to do? Yes, they did. We could look at it and say, well, they were obedient. They did exactly what Moses told them to do. But let me ask you a second question with that. Did they trust God to complete the task? No. They were obedient, but they didn't trust. See, it's easy sometimes to just do what we know we're supposed to do. But it's another thing to take God at his word and trust him through it. That's another subject. So this week, it's been a crazy week. I look at everything that's taken place and I'm like, whoo, yeah, not fun. And I'm thinking from a physical standpoint, all this carpet that we've ripped out, can't put that back until we fix the foundation. Figure out what that fix is because it's like seven Baptist preachers in a room. You ask them one question, you're going to get seven different answers. They all have water guys and they all have an answer. Which one's right? Got to take somebody's word, right? So we're seeking wisdom. But then that question comes, how do you pay for it all? Did God know that this day would come? Absolutely he did. Absolutely 100% knew this day would come. So what do we need to do? Stay focused, keep serving, walk in obedience, and trust him. To see that he's going to work in ways that we'd never ask or imagine. Last couple weeks he said, hey, trust me to do what you can't do. And by the way, the scope of what I'm asking you to trust is a little bit bigger than what you thought it was. Thanks. Needed that. But I know that God is great. And if he can work in these circumstances, see, when the fishermen got to the other side, he did more great miracles but they had to stay on course. Even though there were some distractions, they had to stay on course. Feeding of the 5,000, the disciples had to realize that we can't do this. 
So we need to take God at his word to know that he will. And in Numbers, God not, doesn't just want us to be obedient. He wants us to trust him. I don't know about you, but that's a challenge. It's a challenge. How does God want you to respond to that? I don't know how he wants you to respond. But I'm just going to tell you, I'm not giving up. Those of you that were here last Sunday night, I made a comment, kind of just in passing, because I do believe the comment. And I said it Thursday night in men's Bible study. I have no doubt in my mind, not one single shred of doubt, that if a monster tree hypothetically were to fall into this roof and we had to come up with $40,000 to put a new roof on, I have no doubt in my mind that God has somebody that can write a check for it. I don't know who they are, because I don't know who gives what in this church. But I believe that God has people that he can count on and use to carry on his work. I just believe that. God has people. It might be you. Talking about me, Pat? Yeah, it might be you. I don't know who it is. But I believe God has those people. But I also believe that God performs his will through his people. Through all of us working together. The question is, will we let him use us? Will we trust him to do what he wants to do? Will we trust him? I don't know what God may be doing in your life. But I know this. We serve a great God. And my challenge to you this morning is to take the step of faith with me. To trust God with me to do what only he can do. For a kingdom impact. Not for me, not for you, not for anyone, any, any individual in this church. But for God's glory. To see his kingdom grow. Let's pray for kingdom impact. What God chooses to do, that's his will. That's his desire. That's his plan. I don't know what it all may be. But it's going to step. Take a, take. It's going to start with us taking a step of faith and trust in Him. Will you take the step? That's what I'm asking this morning. Will you take a step of faith and trust God? Will you believe God? Will you take Him at His word? And you notice I haven't said for what. I'm not asking you to give fifty thousand dollars. I'm not asking you to give a million dollars. I'm not asking you to give you a hundred dollars. Because I don't know what God wants to do. But I'm taking God at his word that he wants us to take a step of faith. Whatever that may mean. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And as we pray, maybe this morning would be a good opportunity for many of us to simply recommit our lives to his service. That we would pray this morning that God would increase our faith and help us to step out in obedience and trust him more for what he wants to do in and through all of us. Let's pray.